Well, good morning. Excited to continue our series this morning, The Call of the Minor Prophets for today. And today we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk, and I'm super excited uh, to dive into that with you. Before we go any further, let's pray. Father God, we come to you in your mighty son's Jesus' name. God, we sing that you are good, Father God, because you are. You're so good. And I pray that you would speak to us this morning. I pray that you would move me out of the way. I pray that I would decrease so that you would increase and be made much of in the lives of your people. Speak to us through your word. Teach us how to apply it and live it out and how to represent you in this world. Uh, we thank you and we love you. This is your mighty son's Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. A third grade teacher gave her students an assignment, and the assignment was this, ask God any question that you would like. And so she told them to write a letter to God, and in this letter, they could, they could ask God anything that they wanted to ask him. And so let's, let's look at this. This gets good. Dear God, did you mean for a giraffe to look like that, or was it an accident? <laughs> Norma, dear God, I bet it is very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I could never do it. (laughs) Just being honest. Dear God, on Halloween, I'm going to wear a devil's costume. Is that all right with you, Marnie? Dear God, if you give me genie lamp like Aladdin, I will give you anything you want except my money or my chest set. Raphael, he has priorities. Dear God, is Reverend Coe a friend of yours, or do you just know him through business? (laughs) That's insightful. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) Joyce, (laughs) and this is the last one. Dear God, I went to this wedding, and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? (laughs) Neil, kids are not afraid to ask anything. Jesus says, if we are to enter the kingdom of God, then we must become like children. Children are curious. They have a ton of wonder about them. They, uh, they have an awe of things. Uh, but our curiosity leaves us when we feel like we have figured life out. Once we f- feel like we figured life out or figured God out, then that curiosity starts to fade and our faith starts to dry up. We might say, yeah, nobody's going to get me. I've been around the block, right? I know, I know what's going on here, right? I, I have figured some things out, and therefore I, I kind of know enough even about God to be satisfied, and I know enough about God to know that I'm not interested and for some of us, we're like uh, Dorothy. We, we feel like we've looked behind the curtain and seen that there is no wizard. And so all of that awe and wonder is gone. Uh, this happened to an individual, an individual that I really admire, a guy by the name of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, uh, the man behind the iPhone, a brilliant mind. Uh, well, at the age of 13, he had some questions about God, and one question in particular, it, it made him uh, pause, and, and I, I just want you to look at it. it. It was a tough question that he had for his pastor at that time at the age of 13. 
and this comes from his biography. It says, in July 1968, Life magazine published a shocking cover showing a pair of starving children in Biafra. Steve Jobs took it to Sunday school and confronted the church's pastor. Does God know about this? And what's going to happen to those children? The pastor answered. Steve, I know you don't understand, but yes, God knows about that. Jobs announced that he didn't want to have anything to do with worshiping such a God. And he never went back to church. True, true story. He had some, some tough questions for God. And sometimes in our world, we have tough questions for God. As, as God's people, we have tough questions for him. As those who follow uh, Christ, uh, people have tough questions for us. us. And one of the toughest questions is, why evil? Why suffering? Why injustice? Why does God allow it? We, we might ask, why is God allowing it? We might say, God, couldn't you do something about it? Couldn't you, couldn't you do something about the disease? Couldn't you stop it? God, couldn't you make my, my parents love each other again? I don't like it that they're separate. God, couldn't you remove the depression? Could you? Couldn't you? And sometimes we ask these hard questions. God, why, why the violence? Couldn't you just stop the violence? And we wrestle. As we look at our text today, we're going to see Habakkuk wrestling with God. Some have called Habakkuk uh, the philosopher prophet because he brings a lot of questions before God. There's some things that are happening in his day that are troubling him. He wants to know, why is this happening? Why are you allowing this? Uh, Habakkuk lived, uh, most scholars think, under two different kings. He lived under King Josiah, and Josiah was a righteous king. Uh, Josiah led a revival in Israel. Uh, the people followed God closely under King Josiah. It was, a, it was a good moment in the history of Israel. But also Habakkuk, the man who was having this conversation with God today, he also lived under King Jehoiakim. And King Jehoiakim uh, was a wicked king. Uh, he led the nation away from God. There was widespread violence, widespread idolatry, widespread injustice and, and evil happening out in the open, and it just looked like the world was out of control, and it's under that type of wickedness and evil that Habakkuk is talking to God. And so he has some questions for God. Let's take, let's take a look at some of those. The first one is, how long must I call for help, but you do not listen? Uh, this is a question of long suffering. How long, how long must I endure this? And it seems like you're not even listening. Habakkuk felt like his prayers were bouncing off of the ceiling. He feels like he's not getting through. He just wants to know, how long must I endure this? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. He, he, he's pointing out that there's violence happening right in front of him. And it looks like God isn't doing anything about it. He continues, why do you make me look at injustice? Sometimes it's hard to be mistreated, and there's a, there's a form of suffering that comes from being mistreated, but sometimes there's a form of suffering that comes from watching other people be mistreated. 
And that's what Habakkuk is experiencing. He's, he's seeing other people being treated wrong. He's like, I have to see this. I have to watch this. Why do you make me look at injustice, God? He continues. And then it gets personal. And he directs this straight to God. He says, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? He takes it straight to God. Like, why are you allowing this? Why are you tolerating this? This is personal now. Uh, this is something that we can even learn from Habakkuk. He takes his pain and his problems directly to God. That's even what makes him unique as a prophet. And in, in most of the books, we'll see that uh, the prophets are addressing people uh, with the problems of the world. But Habakkuk goes straight to God. He says, God, why are you tolerating this? Now, do you think God is offended at Habakkuk's questions? Do you think God was offended at Steve Jobs' questions from that 13-year-old little boy? Do you think God is offended by your questions? In his book, If I Were God, I'd End All the Pain, John Dixon explains it like this. He says, one of the most striking elements of the Bible's treatment of suffering is the way it endorses our right to question God and to plead with him for some kind of response to our predicament. The Bible endorses questioning. And we have examples of people crying out to God, questioning him about what's going on in their world. God invites the questions. He wants you to wrestle with them. Habakkuk got it right in the sense that he took his problems to God first, and he's wrestling with these difficult questions with, with God. And so there is a back and forth we're going to see in the text. He's going back and forth with God. Uh, let's continue. Habakkuk 1.4, and this is Habakkuk to God. Again, he's just letting God have it. He says, therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails, the wicked him and the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk is saying the law that you gave us, God, it is paralyzed. When something is paralyzed, it's not working, it's not moving. Uh, the people who are supposed to be uh, keeping this law are breaking this law. They're not living by what they're preaching. This is out of hand, out of order. The law is paralyzed. I don't, I don't know what's going on. It seems like justice never prevails from Habakkuk's perspective. Nothing is working. Evil is winning, and the world is falling apart. And he says, justice is perverted. When something is perverted, it's no longer fulfilling its intended purpose, right? It was created for one thing, uh, but now it's being used for another. And in this case, uh, justice is no longer fulfilling its intended purpose, which begs the question, well, what is justice? It's a word that gets tossed around a lot. Justice in Old Testament is mishpat. And that word mishpat, and I like Tim Keller's definition, mishpat is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. It's giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. And so Habakkuk is saying that justice is being perverted, right? There's some people that should be held accountable for the wrong that they're doing, and they're not being held accountable. They're just doing it out in the open, and they're not being held accountable for the injustice and the wickedness that they're pr practicing. They're not being held accountable for hurting people. Uh, he, he's basically saying there are some people that should be protected, and they're not safe. 
Uh, he's saying there's some people who should be cared for, and they lack things that they need. Justice is perverted. It was created for one thing, but the people, uh, such as the king he was under, are, are abusing it, and therefore justice is perverted. And so there's this back and forth between God and Habakkuk. Let's, let's, let's continue in this conversation. This is God responding now to Habakkuk. He, he's, he's taking the punches from Habakkuk, and now, and now God is going to speak back. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I have to pause there. God is actually working, right? From Habakkuk's perspective, God isn't working. From Habakkuk's perspective, evil is winning. From Habakkuk's perspective, his, his prayers are bouncing off of the ceiling and God is not listening to him, but God is saying, I am doing a work in your days that Habakkuk, you wouldn't even believe. God is actually at work and that's, that's true for us. There are times where it, where it looks like evil is winning, but all along God is working. Let's continue in this conversation with God in Habakkuk. He says, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Whoa, 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 whoa. This is what Habakkuk would have hit time out. The Chaldeans, and God's like, yeah, the Chaldeans. You raising up the Chaldeans? Like, yes, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Th this wasn't good news uh, for Habakkuk. In, in this day, uh, the Chaldeans were a people in southern Babylon, Babylon uh, where we would call southern Iraq uh, today. It's, it would be in that place in the world today. And at this point in history, uh, the Chaldeans, uh, they were uh, described by some as a warlike people. Uh, they were conquering different nations. Uh, we heard about the Assyrians last week uh, from the cult. Well, they actually conquered the Assyrians uh, and they were making their way around. And God is saying, I am raising them up to bring judgment upon my people even. And Habakkuk is not happy about this. He's like, whoa, 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 I want justice I want you to rid uh, us of evil, but I have an idea of how I think that's supposed to look, and I don't really agree with that. Let's continue. Uh, God is saying he's going to raise up the Chaldeans. You who are purized and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, this is a back talking back to God, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Oh, that's, that, that's important. He says, you're going to use some people to judge us who are more wicked than us. At least if you're going to judge us, use some good people to judge us. You're using some evil people to judge us. And so how are you going to use some people who, who are more wicked than us when we're more righteous than them? See, here's the, here's the, the big idea from this text. And I believe if we understood this, I think we'd have better conversations with people who we disagree with. I think we would have better conversations around our dinner tables about this issue of justice. And, and, and here's the big idea. And this is what Habakkuk is wrestling with. True justice doesn't find its origins inside the heart of man. But instead, true justice overflows from the character of God. 
you and I don't make the best judges of right and wrong. We are, we are wrong a lot. We don't always, we don't have the moral purity. We don't have the objectivity, uh, especially to, 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 to judge God back, if you will. Right? We, we are to submit to his, his, his justice because he is just. Uh, we can't create our own standards of justice and righteousness because we have too much going on in our hearts. And so uh, true justice doesn't find its origins inside the heart of man. True justice overflows from the character of God. It's not something that man creates or can conjure up on his own. But God is just. God is so committed to justice that he crucified his only son. God is also so committed to mercy that he crucified his only son. So that justice and that mercy just overflows from his character. It's just who he is. And that's difficult to embrace at times. He doesn't just write laws, but he is a just God. Let's see how this conversation continues. Habakkuk is struggling with this, like you and I struggle with this. And it's very tempting to want to create standards of justice on our own and even take matters into our own hands. But God calls us to walk by faith, and that's what we're going to see Habakkuk do. Eventually... Habakkuk gets to a point in this story, in chapter 3, where he's praising God. He has trusted God so much that he's praising him. He goes from this place of being perplexed to this place, this place of praise. Well, let's see how he gets there. The Lord speaks into Habakkuk's situation. It says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. This is God speaking to Habakkuk. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous, hear this now, shall live by faith. God is saying, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to handle it. I'm going to, to resolve evil once and for all. But while you are here on this earth, I'm calling you to live by faith. And this is, this is very challenging. It is very difficult in a world where evil is real, injustice is real, suffering is real, pain is real. But God calls his people to set their gaze on his promises. I'm going to trust your word. I'm going to trust your word, God, that you said you're going to work it out. So I'm going to set my gaze on your promises, but at the same time, I have to live in this world for real. And so as I'm living in this world, I'm going to align my character with yours and live by faith. It's holding this tension of, yes, uh, there's a day where he's going to take care of it, but I still have to live in this world, and I'm going to live by faith. And there are some people who are far more courageous than me who have lived by faith in the face of evil and suffering and injustice. I think of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan 
who for the same faith in the same songs that we sang this morning could lose their lives. And they face evil and they face suffering. And, and they have to walk by faith in that. That's, that's their every day. I, I, I think of the underground church in, in China where our brothers and sisters there are being persecuted for what they, belie- for what they believe. And, and, and they have to live by faith. I think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the Civil Rights Movement. He had to live by faith. He was being attacked, house bombed, spit on, stabbed. And he, has, and he has the nerve to keep going and to believe that God is in this some kind of way. God calls his people to live by faith. We live in such a way that communicates that what happens in this world isn't the most important thing, that we have a greater hope than what exists in this, in the, in this world, and we still have to live in it and trust him and follow him in this world. It's this tension that we live in. Like I said, some people far more courageous than me. I think of June 23rd, 1963, uh, in Detroit. Martin Luther King Jr. comes to Detroit to lead the March of Freedom. Some 125,000 people gathered in Detroit for the March of Freedom. Up until that point in history, uh, this was the largest uh, civic demonstration in American history. It was huge, and and people uh, marched up Woodward Avenue, and Dr. King led this. And he spoke about segregation. He spoke to poverty. He spoke of a nonviolent movement that a lot of people didn't get. It didn't make sense to a lot of people of this nonviolent movement. And he, he gave a, a famous speech for the first time that a lot of us uh, have heard of. Uh, he gave the I have a dream speech for the first time here uh, in the Detroit area. Uh, In Washington, D.C., when he gave it, that's the one that people think of the most. Uh, That was the second time he gave it. As a matter of fact, the story goes, he was given a a speech at the March on Washington, and it wasn't quite going so well. He was taking a more academic approach, and I don't think people were really feeling it as much. And so Mahalia Jackson, who was at the uh, Detroit speech, says, hey, Martin, tell him about the dream. Tell him about the dream in Detroit. Tell him about that. So he goes off notes, and he goes into the I Have a Dream speech, uh, which he gave first here in Detroit. And I want to share a clip of it. I have a dream this afternoon that my four little children, that my four little children will not come up in the same young days that I came up within but they will judge, be judged on the basis of the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I have a dream this afternoon that one day right here in Detroit, Negroes will be able to buy a house or rent a house anywhere that their money will carry them, and they will be able to get a job. I have a dream this afternoon that the brotherhood of man will become a reality in this day with this faith. I will go out and 
carve a tunnel of hope through the mountain of despair with this faith. I will go out with you and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. With this faith, we will be able to achieve this new day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing with the Negroes in the spiritual of all, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty. Amen. Yeah. That happened here, right here in the Detroit metro area. So chances are God isn't calling you to give an I have a dream speech. But he is calling you to live by faith and live in such a way that communicates that my ultimate hope isn't found inside of this world. But while I am here, I want my heart to break for the things that break God's heart. God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. What does that look like in real life? It's, it's, it's saying, God, I see something that doesn't seem quite right. Does, does this break your heart too? I think Steve Jobs got halfway there. Does, does this break your heart too? What are you calling me to do about that? What does it look like for me to be your hands and feet in a broken world? What does it mean for me to reflect your heart and your character to a world that desperately needs it? Are you calling me to leverage my voice or my influence in some kind of way for the benefit of someone else? Are you calling me to make a career change? Are you calling me to move somewhere differently? God, are you calling me to suffer and, and to suffer in such a way uh, that it brings you glory? But regardless, we're, we're to live in a way that reflects his kingdom. And we live in a world that desperately needs an echo of heaven and not an echo of itself. We live in a world that needs us to bring a taste of heaven to it. And we ask God, God, where do you want me to do that? We live in a world where suffering is real and evil is real, but we're not, we're not in heaven yet. We're still here. So obviously God has something for us. I know that some people may be suffering this morning, and I want to encourage you to pinch your Bibles. What do I mean by that? In Genesis 2, before sin enters the world before Adam and Eve sinned against God, there was no suffering. There was no injustice. There was no pain. And we look back at Genesis 2 as a time that was when there's no suffering, no pain in this world. So we pinch, pinch our Bibles there. Uh, we also look to Revelation 21, and we pinch it there. It says, and he who was seated on the throne, speaking of Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. No suffering, no pain, no disease, no injustice, no evil, no death. And he says, I'm making all things new. But what does that leave you and me? 
we live in the middle. There was a point where there's no suffering. There will be a point where there's no suffering. But until then, you and I live in the middle. And as we live in the middle, we're called to live by faith. Now, a Western secular worldview would say, this middle is all you get. So you better live it up. You better make the most of it because this is all you get. Can't really make too much sense of suffering. Um, Just this is it. That's a secular Western worldview. And that's pretty sad. But what the scriptures teach is that God came and jumped in the middle. Jesus was born in the middle, put on human flesh, suffered and died for the sins of the world. We have a God that was wounded, so he understands our pain. Uh, he, He came and jumped in the middle and suffered so that you and I would never suffer again. That's what he offers. Uh, the God who, who, who jumps in the middle. And, in, and until we see him, we live in this middle and we live by faith. And when our faith gets weak, we can lean into him. Uh, he suffered so that we wouldn't suffer again. And he's for us and he's with us right here in it. And he offers that to you and me. That, that's, a, that's far better than being left with just this on its own. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in your mighty son's Jesus' name. God, thankful that you jump in the middle with us. God, you you stand alongside us in the hospital bed. God, you look on and you see evil and injustice with us, and it breaks your heart too. And though we might try to serve... And sacrifice, God, you, you made the ultimate sacrifice. And for that, we're forever grateful. God, teach us to live like you and to live by faith until the day comes, God, where we never have to suffer again. It's in your mighty sons, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.